bounce class either up a night or back a night in order to uh, make things work out so we don't miss Bible class. That It's a lot easier just to move it one night than it is to cancel it for that whole week. But there's sometimes that just can't be avoided. Open your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we'll continue our study at verse 1. Let me read the first three verses. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, last time we began by looking at 4.1. And just to make sure you haven't forgotten, we'll back up and review that first phrase that we looked at. It begins with the Greek word pothen, P-O-T-H-E-N. This is an interrogative adverb and indicates and asks the question of source. From whence does this come? What is the source of something? What is the source of quarrels? James is asking a series of rhetorical questions. He asks one in verse 13 of chapter 3. He again asks a rhetorical question here at 4.1. And he will again ask a couple of rhetorical questions in verse 4 and verse 5. The purpose for asking these questions is to get his readers to think to look at their own life, to look at what's going on in their own thinking, and to examine themselves. What we see in 4.1 here is something that we haven't seen too clearly up to this point. There have been hints, but what we see here is that there are some major problems with this congregation. I'm getting a loud fan noise off of... uh, this thing, so somebody we ought to check that after class. Off the the fan is really a lot noisier, like the bearings are going or something. I don't know. Um, what we see here is that there are some major problems in this congregation. They are divided. We we see hints of it. If you go all the way back to the first chapter, there are hints. He's talking about testing. Obviously, there is some outside pressure coming to bear on members in this congregation. And the result is that they are not responding with stress busters and the problem-solving devices. Instead, they are responding with human viewpoint. And the result is that when you respond with human viewpoint, at some point, sooner or later, you are going to be reacting to the situation on the basis of the sin nature, and you're going to be converting the outside pressure of adversity or prosperity into the inside pressure of the soul. Now, often when you talk about testing, you hear people, it's easy to understand why adversity is a problem, but what about prosperity? I had a phone call from one of our uh, tapers this last week, and we were chatting about some things, and this person, who I've known for about ten years or so, when I first met him, he was just a struggling young businessman who you know, was trying to figure out how he was going to pay his bills next month. 
The Lord has incredibly prospered his business so that his face is now recognized by almost any citizen in the state in which he lives because he is on television almost every week with commercials for his business. And God has prospered him so that the problem now is how is he going to pay his bills, but he has so much in terms of financial resources now, he's trying to figure out how to spend it. Now, a lot of us think, boy, what a great problem that would be. And he, said, he was telling me, he said, Robbie, you need to tell people that I've been through adversity and I've been through prosperity and give me adversity any time. The pressures you're under in prosperity are ten times harder to deal with than the pressures in adversity. Because all of a sudden you can have the option to rely on anything in the world other than doctrine. He said, when I was struggling, I was listening to two or three tapes a day and I was always in the Word. And now you really have to work at making that a priority because there's a thousand distractions. Now you can spend your money on all kinds of things and have all kinds of toys and pleasures and enjoy all the uh, details of life and they all become a distraction to your devotion to doctrine. Prosperity is a lot more of a struggle and puts a lot more pressure on the soul than adversity does. And it's tricky because you don't really see it coming. You're having too much fun. So just a note of encouragement for those of you who are thinking that you would just like the Lord to give you prosperity someday. You have the ten stress busters, and they're not using them in the congregation. We see hints of it back in the first chapter, and he talks about people who do not ask in faith because they are double-minded and they are unstable. And he builds this idea that there are problems in the congregation in chapter 2. We saw problems with the way they treated certain people who came into the congregation, those who were Believers, even though this believer is almost what we would call a street person, he's impoverished, he probably looks awful, smells worse, and they put him in the back of the church and they give the position of honor to the unbeliever who is the one who is mistreating and abusing them and taking them to court. Furthermore, we see that there are doctrinal problems. There's failures to understand issues related to salvation. Then in chapter 3, we see that there are those in the group who think they know a lot of doctrine and are teaching, and they are not communicating the truth. And there is the indication there of the dangers of the sins of the tongue, especially in relation to those who think they ought to be teaching doctrine. And then he begins to focus in on the problems and the underlying conflict in 3.13 through 18, the difference between human viewpoint wisdom and divine viewpoint wisdom. And now in the first part of chapter 4, he is really driving the point home that he is saying there are problems in the church. There are these quarrels, conflicts. The church is dividing. There are constant uh, relational problems between people in the church. And this you can apply to people in a marriage, to a group, any area of social relationship when people are operating on the sin nature, how can you tell that they're, they're doing that? Because there are quarrels, there are differences, there is antagonism, there is contention. Whenever that is dominating a relationship, whatever the sphere may be, then the cause is always the sin nature. 
So we need to remind ourselves of the nature of the sin nature. What this looks like. Every single human being has a sin nature. Adam acquired the sin nature at the point of his fall. When he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. And we covered that in detail in our study of John on Sunday morning. When God said, Thou wilt certainly die. That is a Hebrew construction, a cal infinitive absolute plus a cal imperfect of the verb to die, the verb mot in Hebrew, which means to die. And the intensive stem there, or the intensive construction, indicates death in all of its forms, I think. More than just simply spiritual death. As I reflected on that some more after Sunday morning, I think it includes, it's primarily spiritual death, but includes every form of death. There was no death prior to Adam's fall. That's clear from Romans 5 where the subject is that that death entered into the human race, for by one man death entered into the human race, and in 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the context is resurrection, physical resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when it talks about death came by one man, the death that comes by one man in 1 Corinthians 15 is physical death, not spiritual death, because the context is talking about resurrection from from the dead from physically physical death. So it is clear that death in all of its forms is included in the penalty for sin there in Genesis chapter 2. When Adam sinned, he acquired a sin nature, and this is passed on genetically to all of his descendants. Now we have two poles in the sin nature. There is the person area of weakness which produces personal sins. Personal sins come in three categories. Mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. Mental attitude sins are the most destructive. Mental attitude sins are the most subtle. You have emotional sins such as hatred, anger. You have sins such as jealousy. You have sins of arrogance, which include self-absorption, self-justification, and self-deception. What you see is when you're operating on mental attitude sins, they can be hidden by an external lifestyle of good work. So that often you find that people may be living a good moral life. They may be involved in a lot of religious activity. They may look good on the outside, but on the inside they may be motivated by arrogance and pride and jealousy and they may be motivated by a lust pattern such as approbation lust. They're trying to gain approval from man. They're trying to gain approval from God. Maybe they're operating on power lust. This happens a lot, I think, in legalistic churches where you have deacons, you have pastors, you have Sunday school teachers who are meddling in everybody's business and trying to dictate to everybody how they should live their lives. That is uh, various forms of legalism, and that was classically exemplified in the Scriptures in the life of the Pharisees. So you have personal sins, but the sin nature also produces human good. Human good is very deceptive because we think that when we do good deeds that they're inherently good. But the Scripture says that de- deeds are only intrinsically good when they are produced in the power of God the Holy Spirit. 
the production of the Holy Spirit, which is the result of Bible doctrine in the soul that has renovated the thinking of man. So that you can have all kinds of good deeds in your life. You can have a life of extreme morality, but it's all wood, hay, and straw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The internal motivator of the sin nature is the lust pattern. This is what drives us. This is the internal motivator of the sin nature. You have power lust, approbation lust, materialism lust, money lust, sex lust, chemical lust, inordinate inordinate ambition leading to inordinate competition, all manner of lust that drive us. And they drive us in one of two directions. These are the trends. This trend is towards asceticism or legalism. What is asceticism? Asceticism is the idea that if I do good, if I look good, if I engage in a life of morality, if I give up certain things, if I don't go to movies, if I don't watch certain television shows, if I uh, don't read certain books or don't engage in certain activities, then that is going to impress God. And that is a sign of spirituality. And what this does is it defines spirituality in terms of overt behavior. The trouble is that overt behavior often masks lust patterns of approbation lust and power lust and personal sins of arrogance, mental attitude sins of arrogance. Asceticism also fosters legalism. Legalism can be defined as Man does the work, and God is supposed to bless it. It is the attempt to gain God's approval, God's approbation, on the basis of what we do or what we give up. Grace, on the other hand, recognizes that God does all the work. And all we do is receive it. And there's a vast difference between legalism and grace. Now, the thing is that everybody talks about grace. I haven't met a legalist yet that didn't talk a lot about grace. And that's what's deceptive. In fact, nothing is more deceptive than religious people. Religious people who are operating on legalism or who've just given up a belief in the Bible as the Word of God. Several years ago, about 15 years ago, I was in between ministries, and I just moved back to Houston. And I decided to go to a church for a short time that several friends of mine were, were attending, just to see what was going on there. And it was a church that was associated with the main denomination. And I sat out there, and I listened to the pastor preach his little 20-minute sermonette every week. And as I listened to him, and I met him and got to know him a little bit and talked to him, found out where he went to seminary and what his background was. If I listened to him with untrained ears like the average person sitting out there, it almost sounded as if he was teaching the truth. But I knew where he went to seminary. And I knew what his theological background was, and it was what is called neo-orthodoxy. Now, neo-orthodoxy is a much different problem than legalism. 
See, orthodoxy in this sense is not talking about Greek orthodoxy or Russian orthodoxy in that sense of a technical term, but that just in terms of being biblically correct, orthodox. And historically what you had was you had uh, historical orthodoxy, what we would call uh, the theology of the Puritans, theology of evangelicals up through the uh, 1700s and early 1800s. Then you had the advent of religious liberalism, Protestant liberalism that was imported from Europe, which denied supernaturalism at its core. And liberalism put a lot of hope in man. Man was the ultimate determiner of truth through rationalism and empiricism. Liberalism rejected everything supernatural in the Bible. It rejected the virgin birth. It rejected miracles. It redefined the atonement of Christ to moral atonement. It's a great example to mankind. Jesus wasn't the God-man. He was just a good man. All of this is part of religious liberalism. But one of the things that characterized religious liberalism was optimism. And all through the 19th century with the advent of of science and the rise of modern science, technology, there was hope. Man was going to solve all the problems. We were going to correct all the social evils and man would gradually perfect society. And so they were post-millennial in the liberal sense. They were were post-millennialism. What killed that optimism? What killed that optimism was that man's technology not only solved many problems, it also created incredible weapons of war, which were first used in World War I. And World War I was the death knell to the optimism of religious liberalism. And there was a man that came along who was trained as a religious liberal. He was a German theologian by the name of Karl Barth. And Karl Barth, after seeing what the horrors of war in World War I said that liberalism was completely false. We have to go back to the Bible. But he didn't, did not go back to a Bible that was the inerrant, infallible Word of God. They went back to a Bible that was the record of man's... They redefined it as the record of man's relationship with God. So it's still a human book. But now they could believe in certain supernatural things... But it's now, instead of being objectively supernatural, they were redefined as just sort of subjective supernatural. And, it, and this was called neo-orthodoxy. And in neo-orthodoxy, and this affected various other theologians like Brunner and Bultmann and, and um, oh, any number of others, and pretty much dominated Protestant theology in the 20th century. And in neo-orthodoxy, they talk about the cross, and they talk about crucifixion, they talk about resurrection. They, talk, they use all of the historically orthodox terms, but they've redefined them. So that when they talk about Jesus dying on the cross, they're not talking, when you ask them who Jesus is, and you really push them into a corner, you'll discover that Jesus is still the Jesus of liberalism. He's a man. When he died on the cross, he didn't die as a substitute for sin. He's still dying as a moral example. And so what happens is in neo-orthodoxy, as in all religious systems, ultimately man becomes the determiner of what is right. And whenever that happens, the ultimate control factor is always going to be the sin nature. Sin is Satan's greatest tool 
in deceiving mankind. And it all comes right out of this side of the sin nature. Asceticism and legalism in conjunction with human good, especially when it's motivated by approbation lust, is extremely dangerous and subtle. And as I said, it's exemplified in the New Testament in the life of the Pharisees. Now, as we saw in our study in Galatians on Sunday morning, in Romans chapter 7, Paul said he was devoted to the law. He was pursuing the law with every ounce of his being when he was a brand new believer. He was still operating on morality as the key to spirituality. And what, is he, what did he say at the end of Romans 7? that he continued the more that he wanted to do. He couldn't do what he wanted to do, and he did what he didn't want to do. The more he tried to emphasize morality and to reform his life on his own efforts, the more he ended up in sin. And see, this is the thing that the religious crowd never really understands, is the more you emphasize the externals, asceticism, and legalism, the more you promote division, the more you promote antagonism. Why? Because at its very core, there is arrogance. There is this emphasis on personal autonomy. And that is the theme of this entire section of James. Because after James gets through castigating his readers in these first three or four verses, he's going to come back, starting in verse 6, And he's going to talk about the solution, which is humility. So what we see at this beginning, what we must understand at this beginning, is the problem is pride and arrogance. And that when the sin nature is in control, that is always the issue. And the fruit of arrogance is always going to be quarreling and conflicts. It's always going to be antagonism and confrontation in any relationship, marriage, friendship, business, church, whatever the arena of the relationship, when there are quarrels and conflicts, the problem is the sin nature is being given free reign and arrogance is manifesting itself. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And here James uses some very strong, very picturesque language. He, for the first word, the source of quarrels, this is really the word polemos, which is the, the Greek word from which we get the English word polemics. Polemics are what debaters do. But this is a much stronger word than simple de- simply having a debate. P-O-L-E-M-O-S. It is the primary word for warfare, for the eruption of warfare in the congregation. And the second word, which is translated conflicts in the New American Standard, is the word make, M-A-C-H-E, a long E. And that too refers to battles, arguments, open strife, and disputes. So James is painting for us a picture of major conflicts in this congregation. It almost reminds me of a story I heard not long ago about this congregation. Not this congregation today, but this congregation about a hundred years ago. There's a house back here about a hundred yards, back in the woods, 
And in the 1890s, the man who built that house, or he didn't build the house. The house was built about the 1830s. The man who owned the house built a dance floor. Of course, back in those days, this wasn't Preston City Bible Church. It was Preston City Baptist Church. And the pastor apparently was a tad on the legalistic side. And when the uh, uh, local citizenry wanted to learn the modern dance steps and hired a a dance teacher from all the way over in Jewett City, because no one around here knew the modern dance steps, the pastor of this church began to rail against that devilish dancing over there. And the way he painted the picture of the lascivious acts that were taking place and the lust that would be uh, given vent to as the men and women were dancing together was, was so vivid that it packed out the church. And people would come to Preston City Baptist Church to, just to hear the pastor paint these vivid pictures of the lust that was going on on the dance floor over at the house over here. And they would come to the church here, and everybody on this side of the church was pro-dancing, and everybody on this side of the church was, was against dancing. And so there was this great division. They had a picture in the paper at that time of the, the road out here with just a small, it wasn't a highway back then. And there were horses and buggies lined all the way up and down the road as uh, everybody was coming out to hear the pastor preach against dancing. So I think they just wanted to have their lust uh, titillated a little bit. So there are always these kinds of quarrels and conflicts, and legalism always seems to bring the worst out in people. So James is dealing with that kind of a scenario in the congregation. What is the source of warfare in battles among you? Why are you going to war inside the congregation? And then he asks the question, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Notice the very picturesque language that he uses. Now the phrase that he uses here, When he asks the question, he uses a negative plus the adverb in toithen. E-N-T-E-U-T-H-E-N. And in toithen is used to indicate the reason for something or the source for something. So once again, he's coming back and he's emphasizing by the use of the adverb pothen and then the entoithen, he is asking the question, is this not the source? Namely, that's really how it should be translated. Is this not the source? Namely, your pleasures. And the word for pleasures looks like this in the Greek. It is hedonon. The rough breathing mark is transliterated H and H, H E D O N, long O N. This is the basic word for pleasure from which we get our English word hedonism. A hedonist is somebody who lives for his own personal physical pleasure. Nothing is too good for a hedonist. 
Now, what does he mean at that time by hedano? What does he mean by pleasure? Does he mean that pleasure is inherently sinful? Of course not. But you're always going to hear some legalist, some preacher get up, and he's going to try to pour water on everybody's good time. He doesn't want anybody to have a good time to enjoy anything that the Lord gives him. In fact, I used, as you've heard me before, I have facetiously said that the way to activate the uh, last problem-solving device, which is sharing the happiness of God, is to have a good glass of wine or a good beer. Simply because the psalmist said that God made wine for the joy of man's heart. Now that's a very strong... You never hear any legalists talk about that passage. As far as they're... Because it's obvious that if it's going to bring joy to your heart, it has to be alcoholic. But you never hear a legalist mention that. So is that what James is saying here, that pleasure is inherently sinful? Not at all. In Greek thought, when you go back to the 5th century B.C., looking at classical Greek, the, the pleasures hedonon is a reference to either one of the emotions or the seat of the emotions. So this is very has a very strong emotional connotation. In the New Testament, it is hedonon that marks a non-Christian orientation to life. Now let's remember the context. In the context, we were talking about the contrast between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint in 3.13-18. through 18. The wisdom that is from heaven versus the wisdom that is earthly, natural, and demonic. So here we're going to see that part of human viewpoint wisdom is this emphasis on emotions and emotional pleasure. And this is marked in the Scripture as a contrast to divine viewpoint. It is when this becomes the criterion for life. That sounds awfully modern, doesn't it? See, there's nothing wrong with emotion. God gave us emotion. When we look at our soul, the soul is made up of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. The mentality is the seat of the thinking, the cognition in the soul. Emotion, emotions are responders. There are good emotions and there are sinful emotions. But when emotion is placed in the driver's seat, see, as a responder, it's not the initiator. It's not the driver. But when emotions are placed in the driver's seat, where the emotion becomes the initiator, that is when you have emotional revolt of the soul. And that is indicative of reversionism. What is reversionism? Reversionism is when the believer reverses course And instead of advancing spiritually, he is declining spiritually. He is operating in reverse. And emotions become the initiator and the criterion rather than the responder to the doctrine that is in the heart, the innermost thinking lobe of the soul. Now in 2 Timothy 3.4, one of the signs of this 
the declining generation and one of the trends, one of the cycles in the church age is that when a culture or civilization is in moral revolt and spiritual revolt against God, then they will be dominated by people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And there we have the same word, hedano, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's also related to the reversionist believer who lives according to his own will rather than God's will in 1 Peter 4.2. So the word came to mean those who had a desire for pleasure and it is that desire for pleasure that became the ultimate criterion in life. Personal pleasure dominates everything. I'm in this for how good it's going to make me feel. And this is a critique of our society today. People make decisions on the basis of how it makes them feel. And you hear people talk about it all the time. Well, it just it makes me feel better. I just feel like that's right. I'm so tired of people asking questions when some critical issue comes up in life, political issue or legislative issue, and they say, well, how do you feel about it? It doesn't matter how I feel about it. What matters is what I think about it. We need to emphasize thinking and logic and not emotion and feeling. Not that emotions are wrong, but emotions are not the ultimate criteria. And when you make emotion the ultimate criteria, what you have is fragmentation of relationships. It starts with fragmentation of the soul because the sin nature is in control. And when you have a fragmented soul because of sin nature controlled under adversity, then it moves to fragmentation of the, of the rela- relationship. You have fragmentation of marriages, fragmentation of families, fragmentation of churches, and fragmentation of countries. And that's exactly the kind of scenario we see today. And that is what James is pointing out here. Is not the source your pleasures? Is not the source the fact that you are putting your own personal desire, your own self-absorption with your own pleasure above everything else? The source is your pleasures that wage war in your members. And in your members is talking about the members of the congregation. This is the problem. They are emphasizing personal pleasure over above everything else. That becomes the major criteria. It's how they feel about it. Verse 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Now, he he builds here. He's he's going to show this progression that takes place in the sin nature. First of all, it says you lust. And the word here is the present active indicative of the verb epithumeo. E-P-I-T-H-U-M-E-O. Epithumeo means to lust, to hunger for, to desire strongly. It is the word that we are familiar with in our study of Galatians 5.16 and following where it says that the spirit lusts, and there it has the connotation of war, the spirit lusts against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit. And it indicates that battle. It is strong desire for control. You lust and do not have. You want to control your life. You've decided 
exactly what it is that has value in life. From the source of pleasure as the criteria, you have developed a scale of values. This scale of values determines your priorities in life. Your priorities determine how you invest your time, how you invest your money, and how you invest your thinking. As a result of that, you have fragmented all your relationships. You lust and do not have, and the result is frustration. When you want something bad enough, and you don't get it, you start off feeling a level of frustration. Because you don't get your way. You keep trying, you keep trying, and you don't get your way, so you're frustrated. After you've gone through a period of frustration for a while, that develops into anger. And now you have the full-blown mental attitude sin dominating the soul. The result of that then is going to be its manifestation in some area of overt sin. And here it is exemplified as murder. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. This is talking about the extreme. The word for murder here is fanuo. It is a precise word for taking life in an illegitimate manner. It is not talking about simply killing. This is not the word for the Greek word for simply taking someone's life. There are many cases when it is justified to take the life of another human being. It's justified to take the life of another human being in warfare. God specifically commanded the Israelites on a number of occasions to go into battle and to defeat and destroy and to completely annihilate the enemy, man, woman, and child. Total warfare. That is not inconsistent with holiness or righteousness. And yet you always have the religious liberal come along and he is so self-righteous And you just can't ever take human life. And the result is, you always emphasize the criminal's values and his life over against the life of the victim. You see another example. Not only do you have the right to take life in warfare, you have the right to take the life of other human beings in capital punishment. Just as you cut out a cancer in your body because if it's allowed to stay there, it will infect the entire body. So you do not allow a soul, a life, a person who has so degraded themselves that they commit certain sins to continue living because they will infect and harm the entire body. The focus is not on the individual who commits the crime and oh how terrible and we must do something to, uh, to bring them back and we must do something in order to rehabilitate them. The Bible in its penal code as exemplified in the Mosaic Law does not believe in rehabilitation. That is not the purpose of the law. It is punishment. Punishment. 
It is not rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is built on a liberal view of man. Now, what do I mean by a liberal view of man? The Bible says that man is inherently evil. I'm not even going to use the word bad or sinful. The heart is deceptive and wicked above all things. Who can know what the Scripture says? At the core of our being, we are all sinners. We have a sin nature. And what Scripture teaches is when somebody allows that sin nature control to deteriorate to the degree that they commit certain sins, that person has forfeited their right to live. The interesting thing, if you look at the Mosaic Law, not that I'm advocating that the Mosaic Law should be the law of any country today, but when God gave a penal code to a nation, the nation Israel, in doing that, He gave us an example of how God thinks a penal code ought to work. And if you notice something about the Mosaic Law, there's no such thing as rehabilitation or incarceration. Incarceration is a terrible thing. What you see in the penal code of the Mosaic Law is either financial restitution or the death penalty. Period. That's the biblical ideal of a penal code. Is if somebody commits certain criminal acts, then they are to repay threefold, fivefold, tenfold. Financial restitution. If they can't do that, then they forfeit their life. It's real simple. You know, I, I kind of think that what we ought to do in our country, we'll never do it because there's too many emotional liberals in control, but we ought to change the penal code so that anybody who's involved in a crime that involves violence, involves a handgun or any other firearm, involves drugs at any level, should be executed within six months, period. That would solve a lot. You wouldn't have... You see, the issue is not rehabilitation. See, we want to operate on this thing that, oh, well, they've done that, let's solve the problem and make them a better person. The Bible says, no. Once they have given up control, there is some dynamic that takes place in the soul that when you have allowed sin nature control to go to a certain degree, it's irreversible. Take them out. They have forfeited their right to life. Of course, we'll never see that. That's just my, that's just my hope and dream. This is the problem we see with the sin nature. Is when it is unrestrained, it results in destruction of relationships, destruction of marriage, destruction of family, destruction of society. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Now, Matthew chapter 5 seems to echo this same thought, or, or rather James echoes the thought of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. So hold your place in James 4, and let's turn to the 5th chapter of Matthew. 5th chapter of Matthew. Now the context is the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is primarily directed towards the ethical standard for the millennial kingdom. But that does not mean that it doesn't have application for today. For just as the Old Testament has application for today in many ways, 
So does the Sermon on the Mount. Now let's start off by looking at verse 20. I think verse 20 is crucial to understand many things that Jesus is saying. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what kind of righteousness did the Pharisees have? Were they moral people? They were exceptionally moral people. What The problem that we have in most of our churches is we've been so caught up with the Gospels for so long that we think of the Pharisees are wearing the black hat and Jesus and the disciples are wearing the white hats. And we look at the Pharisees as the bad guys. But in their culture at that time, the Pharisee, nobody was a more ethical person than the Pharisees. In terms of human virtue and integrity, no one could surpass the Pharisees. The only reason we know that they're hypocrites is because Jesus said so because He could look on what was going on inside them in their thinking. He knew their assumptions, He knew their motivation, and He knew their lust pattern. But if it weren't for Jesus' insights, looking inside the Pharisees, we would think of them as these were paragons of virtue. They were exemplars of moral conduct. Nobody dressed better. Nobody lived a more moral life. Nobody avoided any kind of appearance of evil more than the Pharisees. It is an external righteousness. And yet Jesus says, if you're going to see the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. And see, this is the same problem we've we've already talked about in terms of sin nature control. The sin nature is going to produce from the lust patterns is going to move towards a trend of asceticism and legalism. And when it does so, it is going to emphasize all of these moral principles that you have to live up to if you're going to gain God's approval. Now, a lot of times they won't put it that bluntly. They'll say, oh, no, no, I realize you don't need to gain God's approval and there's grace. But that's, they're, they're twisting their words. Jesus says that unless your righteousness... Scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that means that no single human being can ever do that. No one can surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So how do we do it? We do it because when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, He paid the penalty for our sins. He who knew no righteousness, I mean, He who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What happens is that at the cross... Christ paid the penalty for our sins. All sins in human history were paid for by Christ on the cross so that sin is no longer the issue. And the problem with legalism is that they're always running around trying to deal with sin. Trying to straighten out everybody's life and all the sin in their life. But sins are already paid for. They're not the issue anymore. The issue now is growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the point of salvation, when you exercise positive volition and you trust Christ alone for your salvation, then the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to the believer. 
so that even though he may still be a sinner and have have negative righteousness, he has imputed the perfect righteousness of Christ. And this is what God looks at. This is the only thing that matters. And your relationship with God is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now verse 21 is going to describe here in verse 21 through 23 how superficial our views of sin are. And see, that's the problem with legalism. It has a very superficial view of sin. Verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Now, the Pharisees looked at that in terms of the command on its, on its surface, not committing murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, Jesus is going to explicate this in a different manner. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother... See, the sin deals with a mental, I mean, with an overt sin of murder. But Jesus says that what underlies that overt sin is what is really destructive. It is anger. Everyone that is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Racha, which means fool, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Now, he doesn't say that if you do this, you will go to hell. That isn't what he says. He is simply pointing out that sin is not simply restricted to the overt sin of murder, but also has to do with the entire complex of mental attitude sins, of arrogance, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness, all these various mental attitude sins that undergird that and motivate that overt action of murder. Let's turn back to James 4. James is echoing that concept and that doctrine when he says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. It is the internal problem that is the core problem, not just the overt act. And then he says, and you are envious, once again a mental attitude sin of motivation, you are envious and cannot obtain. The result is frustration. So you fight and quarrel. And the words he uses there for fighting and quarrel take us right back to the initial words, make and polemos. So you are having major battles between you because of these mental attitude sins that are unrestrained. What was the theme of the epistle? How was it structured? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Restraining your mental attitude sin. And then he goes on to say, to apply this to prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. See, when they're operating in mental attitude sins, all come from the root of arrogance. Self-absorption. And when you are self-absorbed, you are, that is just the opposite of faith dependence upon God. So the last thing that is going to occur to them is that they ought to turn to the Lord in prayer and depend upon Him for their needs and to solve the problems and the adversity that they're facing. 
You do not have because you do not ask. And then in verse 3, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. So there's two reasons, there's two things here that are affecting their prayer life. The first is that they just don't pray. They're too arrogant, they're too self-absorbed, they're too busy uh, to pray individually or to get together in corporate prayer. See, corporate prayer is important. All the way through the New Testament you see believers coming together to pray. And they weren't coming together to pray. There's no corporate prayer. They're not coming together at prayer meeting at church. And they're not praying on their own because they're too distracted by all the details of life and they're too self-absorbed. And the second problem is that they ask that when they finally do get around to praying, it is motivated by self-absorption and arrogance to spend it on their pleasures, their hedonon, And so, because it is a prayer from the wrong motive, their prayer doesn't get any higher than the ceiling. You see, sin destroys your prayer life. Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In 1 Peter 3, 7, we have a directive to husbands. An application of this specifically to husbands, it affects wives too, but it's the same principle. But it's an application of Psalm 66:18. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding ways with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, if you're failing in your responsibilities, your Christian responsibilities, as a believer in the home, Your prayers are going unhindered, period. It won't happen. Your prayers are bouncing off the roof and they're never going to be heard from God because you are constantly living in carnality because of your failures in your arena of responsibility as a Christian husband, according to Ephesians chapter 5. That always shakes the men up a little bit. You know, men have a lot of responsibility. Hold your place there. And let's turn over to a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is usually a, pa- a passage that you find trotted out when uh, you have to deal with uh, some problems with women in the church. But I want you to note that, that it starts off dealing with problems with men. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. Emphasizing the importance that... Christian men need to place on prayer. Not just private prayer, but corporate prayer in the local church because that's the context. Therefore, I want the men, and the word here in the Greek is from the root aner, which is not anthropos, which is the word which relates to humanity or mankind in general, but it is aner, which means male. Therefore, I want the males in every place, that is, in every congregation, to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And what that means by way of imagery is that they have dealt with the sin in their life through confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, and they have put aside the sin nature control at that point. In other words, just the opposite of what we find 
in the congregation that James is dealing with. They haven't put aside those mental attitude sins, and so their prayers don't get any higher than the ceiling. But what we see in the Scriptures is that for you men, there is some specific instruction to you in relationship to prayer. Now, we'll come back next time. We need to review the doctrine of prayer, but we don't have any more time tonight to start into that. So we'll come back and get into the doctrine of prayer next time because that undergirds this entire section. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word, to see what the source is of uh, so many personal conflicts, what causes fragmentation in the soul, fragmentation in marriage and families, fragmentation in congregations and in nations. And that is the unrestrained sin nature. Father, we thank You for the grace solution that we have to the penalty of sin through the death substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we thank you for the grace recovery solution we have through 1 John 1.9, that if these things are true in our lives, the penalty was paid for by Christ on the cross, so we need to simply acknowledge it, admit it, and move forward walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would continue to challenge us, bring these things to our mind this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.